One of the things that uh, we like to do is, is stand for the reading of, of this book that we call God's Word. It's God's heart to us. James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but yet you say to the poor man, you stand there, you sit at my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. And is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they, are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming God's holy name to whom you belong? And if you really keep the royal Torah found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, you're convicted by that Torah as lawbreakers, forever keeps the whole Torah and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And let me just give one more verse into next week's text. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith, but they have no deeds, they have no walk, no life to match that faith, can such a faith save them? Maybe seated. So at the, at the beginning of the summer, we started in the book of Jude. Jude is a brother of Jesus, grew up in the same household as Jesus. Now we're in the book of James, and James, too, is a brother of Jesus, a brother of Jude. Uh, they grew up in that same household. So uh, what a family uh, that must have been. We're now getting into the heart of this letter, and James, you're going to see, is going to start hitting really hard on some, some things, especially in regards to how a Christian is to live, or the way that James would put it, uh, how we walk, that our, that our walk is, is important, it's significant, it matters, because James' whole point in this book is that uh, our, our faith is manifested in our walk. You can know what I believe. You can know my faith by simply looking at my life. And I can do the same with you. Now, once you reach this conclusion uh, that you can't divorce your walk from your faith, uh, there, there is a danger, though, that, that arises because what oftentimes happens then is in this situation when we know that our walk matters is uh, we respond to that by just trying harder or we guilt ourselves into being better or we, we, we are always about just trying to perform this and, 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 and 
to become more. But God, God doesn't work this way. In fact, this is not how God works at all. God never says to us what we might say to our kids when they're younger, just do as I say. Uh, God always gives us a why. So, for instance, James knows this, which is why in last week's text, he, he provides this powerful word picture, uh, that of a mirror. And it's very important that, that we see this, because when you look into a mirror, something probably all of us did at least once today, uh, what you see is yourself, uh, a mirror is there to tell us who we are. And James is using this word picture to say that the word of God is a mirror, that before God's word tells us what to do, it first always tells us who we are. So when God gives his, his words, his instructions, his ways to Israel, before he does that, he first saves them, he redeems them, and then he tells them who they are before he tells them what to do. He says, Israel, you're my segula. Though I own the whole world, everything is mine. You, Israel, are my most prized possession. My heart is ravished with you. And the New Testament does the same with us as well. It, it says that we are a chosen people, that, that, that we are God's, uh, his precious, his, his special possession. Uh, we need to know who we are before we hear what God calls us to do and how to live and how to walk. Otherwise, we're in danger of obeying God to get God to like us and accept us, when really we obey God because we already are so loved. We are so accepted. On our text today, James identifies a problem. It's a serious problem. It's occurring in their gatherings. It's laid out in, in verses 2 to 4. These are God's people. God's people are making distinctions. They're making distinctions between the rich and the poor. They're discriminating against the poor. They're showing favoritism to the rich. They're giving the rich among them all these special privileges. Now, if you know that first century world, uh, the, the Roman Empire, this is how they operate. They, they, put, they put rank on every person alive. Every person has a price tag and everybody knows their price tag. Everybody knows their rank. And so every relationship uh, in the Roman world, every activity that was done under the sun was done according to one's rank. For instance, your rank uh, determined what privileges you had, what privileges you didn't have. It determined the places that you could go, the places that you could not go. It, it determined if you could go to the theater and to the games uh, or if you could not go to the theater and the games. And even when you went to the theater and the games, uh, it determined where you sat. It determined what social, social gatherings you could attend. Um, and not only that, but it determined your place at, at the social gathering, where you sat at the table, what food you could eat, what food you couldn't eat. 
Your rank even determined uh, what you could wear, what you could not wear. In fact, everybody knew one's status and rank simply by the clothes that they wore. And so James gives an example of uh, someone who wears a gold ring and, and fine clothes, probably the color purple. Uh, only a, an estate-owning elite could wear a gold ring in the Roman Empire. And this system permeated the whole Roman world. It was how the empire was organized uh, socially, relationally, economically, and politically. And I'll tell you the people who, who were left out of this order, it's, it's the poor. Because the poor had nothing to offer or little to offer. Which is why the poor oftentimes just became slaves. Although even a slave was less than, than being poor, it still provided a place. A place in a Roman household. Or in a Roman estate. So James, in verse 1, says, Why are you showing favoritism to certain people? In fact, uh, that word in verse 1, in the original language, it means to receive someone according to their face. <laughs> it's making everything about externals and appearances and image. And, and I think, you know, we today are much like the world back then. Uh, we, we expect uh, this kind of special treatment uh, in our world, in our culture, where distinctions are still made uh, based on externals and image and appearances and social economic status, where, where people size each other up and they seek to be around certain people and they avoid other people. But this is happening in the church, among God's people. And it, it, it's probably because now the, 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 the church is going out and Gentiles are coming in, Greeks, Romans, people of all ranks are entering in and people, uh, those people, those privileged people that can go places and participate in those exclusive events, uh, people who are accustomed to receiving all kinds of special privileges, and, and everybody know who, knows who those people are because of the clothes they wear and the gold ring on their finger. And as the culture comes into the church, instead of the church shaping the culture, culture shapes the church. The God's people start mimicking uh, the culture around them and they just instinctively start treating people according to their rank the same way their culture treat, treats people. Does this sound familiar? That's why James gets strong. In verse 4, he says to make these kind of judgments about people, that's judgments that are based on image, appearances, and externals. James says that's evil. That is just flat out evil. How many of us today, though, uh, walked into this place and we scanned around and we asked, are these my kind of people? Are there people from my tribe, my rank, my class? Or who are the people, when, when you come in here, who are the people that you talk to? Who are the people that you seek out? Who are, who are the people that uh, you connect with, who you do house church with, who you might go out to eat with or socialize with? 
And I'll tell you why this is, is so evil. Uh, James gets to that in verses 5 to 6, primarily verse 5, when he says, Did not God choose the poor? God chooses them. And he says, you know, God chooses the poor. Do you not know that? Then why, verse 6, why have you insulted the poor? In other words, church, what you are doing is the exact opposite of what God does. God chooses the poor, and therefore, you couldn't be more unlike God. In fact, the way that you show favoritism and discriminate is betraying God's very heart. Now that word choose or God chose uh, in in verse 5, it means to deliberately move towards someone. You know, this is what we should be doing with the poor. Uh, We should be deliberately moving towards them. Which means that we're not to wait for them to just come to us. We're not to wait for social problems to spill into our neighborhoods before we do anything, we are to be a people who are intentional in moving towards the poor. How much of your life is marked by that today? How much of our church is characterized by this? And I think think that James' statement in verse 5, that God chooses the poor, uh, that, that is a remarkable statement. It asked my mind this week as I was studying this to ask, well, what, is, what does this mean, that, that God chooses the poor? Well, can I ask, why did God choose you? Why did God choose me? I had to think about that this week. Why does, God, why does God choose anyone? Why, why did God choose Israel in the Old Testament? Uh, why does God choose uh, a, a people? Our New Testament says that we are a chosen people, that, that God picked us. And then that led me to start wondering, well, does poverty have anything to do with God choosing us? And then my mind went to the greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and he begins this whole sermon with these three words, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or when Jesus launches his ministry in Luke chapter 4, he opens the scroll and reads Isaiah 61, where it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, and the spirit has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And then he closes the scroll and he says, today this word is fulfilled in your hearing. And scholars all conclude that because Luke puts this at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, that Isaiah 61 is Jesus' mission statement. That he's been anointed, he's been Messiah to preach good news to the poor. So who are the poor? Um, There's different words in the original language. Uh, In the Greek, the word here is the Greek word patokoi. Patokoi is actually a word for the poorest of the poor. Uh, These are people who have little means. Uh, Oftentimes, these are people uh, who had to beg for alms 
as beggars. And that too is, wow. Then when you look at the, the narrative in the Old Testament, uh, there's a grouping of, 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 of three people. Uh, or, or Yeah, it, it's, it's the fatherless, it's the widow, and it's the stranger. In fact, so many of God's instructions that he gives to his people are directed to how uh, they are to be shalom uh, to the fatherless and to the widow and to the stranger because this grouping of three all had something in common. Uh, they were outside of Beit Av. Beit Av is the word for family. They had no family. And a family in the ancient world is your protection, it's your life, it's your meaning. But biblically speaking, too, poor uh, also means far more than someone who has little resources or little money. Uh, Poor in the Bible are people who are in chaos. And, and, And people can be in chaos in so many different ways. It doesn't have to just be economically or financially, but it can also be morally, it can be relationally, it can be spiritually where their lives are in, are in chaos. And so when you, when you take a very careful look at the biblical narrative, you see that James is actually right here. That God does choose the poor. Ezekiel 16, God says, Israel, when you were uh, but a newborn, abandoned as an orphan and left in an open field for dead, kicking and screaming in your own blood, God says, I saw you. And I chose you. And you became mine. Deuteronomy 7, God says, Israel, I chose you not because you were the greatest and the mightiest. No, I set my love on you, my affection on you, because you were actually the least. You were the smallest. And then in Exodus chapter 2, uh, we, we, we see in, in the biblical story how, how God's people there are there oppressed as, as slaves and God says to them, I, I, I heard your cry. And that word for cry in Hebrew is the word za'akwa, which we, we translate just as I read it, to cry or to cry out. But, but za'akwa, it's far more than just a simple cry. It's, it, it's the gut-wrenching cries of the oppressed. It's the wailings of the helpless and the hopeless. And God says to Israel, Israel, I, I heard your cries. I chose you. I moved towards you, and you became mine. Like this is why uh, one of God's first instructions that that He gives to Israel after He gets them out of slavery and uh, moves them to Segulah, where they're God's treasured possession, uh, and then He gives them His instructions in Exodus 22. Listen, listen to what He says. He says, "Israel, I do not want you to mistreat or oppress." A stranger, for you are strangers. You're strangers in Egypt. And I, I don't like to take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. See, there's that grouping of three, the stranger, the widow, the fatherless. For if you take advantage of them, and if they cry out to me, I'll hear that cry, just like I heard your cries. And then listen to what God says. My anger will be aroused, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows. And your children fatherless. It's God's heart. 
And he's saying to Israel, Israel, listen, if you want to see my, my, my wrath mistreat the helpless and the hopeless because my heart bleeds for the underdog. And Israel, don't you ever forget who you were or what you were before I chose you, how I moved towards you when you were poor and oppressed. And now all that I have been to you, Israel, I want you to do the same. I want you to be a whole nation who hears the cries and the wails of the oppressed. What about us? Do we hear the cries? Do we hear the wails of the helpless and the hopeless? I get frustrated sometimes when I, when I hear Christians today say things uh, when they're looking at all, our, all the misery in the world and, and, and they say, say things like, where's God in all of this? <laughs> that's, the, that's the wrong question. The right question is, where are we? Where is God's church? Again, we, we, we need to just look into this mirror so we can see who we are and why we are here. Now look at the big issue that, that, that James is addressing today. Um, I mean, in the book alone, it's, it's, it's that our walk absolutely matters, that, that you can't have faith without a walk. And you see that in, in verse 14 of the text that we're going to look at next week. You see it in verse 17 of that same text where uh, James comes to the conclusion that, that faith without a walk, faith without works, faith without a life behind it, it's dead faith. In other words, what James is saying, if I don't walk it, I don't believe it. Now, the part in our text, then, of our walk that James is addressing, uh, it's in verse 3, where he says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes, and you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and you say, here's a good seat for you. But you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit on the floor by my feet. You have, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Same theme is in verse 9. He says, but you show favoritism, and you sin, and you're convicted of the law as lawbreakers. We see it in next week's text even more. He still has this same theme on his mind. He says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to them, well, just go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? That kind of faith is, is, is dead faith. It's, it's worthless faith. And he really got thinking about this theme already in last week's text in verse 27 when he says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, it's to look after the orphan and the widow in their distress. I've spent a lot of time in church world. I grew up in the church. I've been a pastor in the church for many decades. What I've noticed is that uh, more conservative Christians, more conservative uh, churches, they, they put a high 
premium on, on personal holiness. And there's a reason for this, because holiness matters. If, if we as God's people lose our distinctiveness, we have nothing to offer. And I've noticed how more liberal Christians or liberal churches place a high premium on social justice. <laughs> social justice matters. It's God's heart. His heart is, is, is one of justice. His, his heart for a world that he loves is to repair it and to redeem it and to restore it. And then I've also noted, noticed that both uh, conservative Christians and liberal Christians develop out of this then their own hierarchy of sin. And because my experience has been more with conservative Christians, uh, conservative Christians uh, typically place sexual sin at the very top, and then there's everything else. And it's almost okay to be uh, indifferent to the poor. I mean, I've heard people say, quoting Jesus, the poor you'll always have with you, so therefore it doesn't really matter if we involve ourselves in caring for the widow and the orphan and the stranger. But I'll tell you what James is going to do with that kind of thinking. He's going to shatter it. He's going to destroy it. And he does that in verses 8 to 13. In verse 11, James brings up adultery. Then he brings up murder. And, and why are these here? These are the biggies. Uh, I mean, I've grown up even in settings where we put scarlet letters on people for, for, for such sins. But see, when we connect verses 9 to 10 with verse 11, here is what James is saying. He's saying that to neglect the poor is every bit as severe as committing adultery. That helping the widow and the orphan and the oppressed is not optional with God. It's pure religion. Again, I, I don't want to get this in our minds and hearts that, that, that we're saved by caring for the poor, but, but yet it's proof that we have been saved. It's proof that, that, that God is among us and that God lives in us and that our faith is real faith. This is why the prophets over and over again are, are, are hitting this from every angle. I mean, Isaiah begins his whole book and he says, Israel, you're sick. You're sick from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. And you're not sick because of your personal re relationship with God is sick. It's your relationship to the world that's sick. You have no regard for the widow and the poor and the oppressed and the fatherless. This is why in verse 13, James sounds like a prophet. He says, judgment will be mercy less to the person who has shown no mercy. And I want you to hear what James just said. That, that, that's almost a fancy way of saying That if we show no mercy, we're damned. Because without God's mercy at judgment day, that's, that's what we are. 
Judgment, he says, to the merciless. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. And if you think James uh, sounds really harsh here, he actually just sounds like his brother, Jesus. Because in Matthew 25, when, when Jesus describes judgment day, this day when, when, when the Son of Man is going to gather his flock and he's going to separate that flock, uh, the sheep from the goats, the true from the false. And on that day, Jesus says, there will be no mercy for those who showed no mercy. And the reason for this, what's the why behind that? It's because God's heart is so bound with the poor. That's why Jesus says, whatever you did to them, you did it to me. The way we love Jesus is, is, is loving the least of these, and, and to reject them is literally to reject Jesus. Again, we just need to look in the mirror. Who are we? What are we doing here? This is why in verse 1, James starts off by calling them believers. And he's telling them that, that, that belief in Christ, that faith in Christ, it's not compatible with showing any form of partiality. Because think about it, when we show partiality to anyone... We expose where our faith truly lies. We expose our true loves. We expose what we really value, what we really trust. We don't trust God. We might say it. We might think it. We might sing it on Sunday mornings. But we really just trust money. We trust celebrity. We love and we value fame and attention. And things. And I love how James puts this. He doesn't just say believers in Christ, but this is how it literally reads. He says, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory. Oh, man. That is mind-boggling what he just said. I'll, I'll start with the word glory. Glory means heaviness or weight. That's why we call it oftentimes the weight of glory. And this is what the rich man is trying to show off when he comes in. He's displaying his glory because glory means how much you matter. It, it's how significant you are, how weighty you are, how much clout and power you have. And the rich man gets to show off his glory but the poor show off their lack of glory. How does God show off his glory? Well, if you know the biblical story, uh, first, uh, God shows his glory through that glory cloud, this effervescent cloud that's illuminated from within by this blazing fire. So by, by day, this cloud uh, is, this, is this dazzling white cloud, and at night, it's this blazing fire, and it's God's way of saying to his people, and uh, his, his people who are in the desert, I, I'm with you. I'm here. And, and, and yet, as, as awesome as, as God's glory is, uh, and, and, and as much as our hearts desire it, because our hearts made 
to know the glory of, of God at, at as desirable as it is, it's also dangerous. And, and we see this in Moses, who towards the end of his life, after God had revealed so much to Moses and did so much through Moses, Moses still says, God, I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. And God simply says, I can't, Moses. It'll kill you. The weight of my glory, it'll crush you. And see, the ancients understood this. I mean, how many times we read in the Old Testament after people had these amazing encounters with the glory of God, they'd say things like, and yet my life was spared. God didn't kill me. And here is James talking about his brother Jesus, the one he probably shared a bedroom with, maybe even slept in the same bunk with. And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the glory. What James is saying, my brother is the Lord. He is the glory of God. That glory cloud that led Israel in the desert that, that filled the tabernacle, that filled the temple. That's my brother, Jesus. Hebrews 1 says the same thing, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4. He says the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, it's in the face of Christ. If Jesus is God's is the very glory of God. Think about how he brought God's glory. Look at what 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says. Paul says it so succinctly here. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, <laughs> that's an understatement, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. How did Jesus bring God's glory? He gave up his glory. And there's never been a, a, a greater glory than this glory. Isaiah tells us this, he, about the Christ, that, that Christ had no beauty or form to attract us to him. Or, or, or no appearance that we should desire him. In fact, the only other time that those uh, three words are used to describe someone, uh, first of all, beautiful Rachel, it says that she was beautiful in form and appearance. And then it also says it about her son Joseph, that he was beautiful in for, form and appearance. And then later in the text, it says it about Esther, who won the Miss Universe contest. It says that she... <laughs> was beautiful in form and appearance. And yet Isaiah tells us that Christ had none of that. The all-glorious one gave it all up. In fact, Isaiah says that Jesus became so marred and so disfigured that men literally had to hide their faces. Just think about that. 
We're talking about the all-glorious one. That as Jesus hung there on, on the cross, people couldn't even stomach to look at him. That God in Christ gave up all glory so that you and I could receive it. He gave up his beauty, became poor so that we could have the riches of God. He became despised so we could be loved by God. He gave up his home so that you and I could be called sons and daughters of God. And this is the glory of all glories. That the all-glorious one, I mean, think about it. Even the stars and the galaxies are but a fraction of the glory of this God. And yet this God gave up every last drop of that glory for the simple reason that we could have it. That we could have the weight of his glory, that we could be transformed into his glorious likeness. You know the people who listen to this? You know the people whose hearts are melted by this? The poor. Which is precisely why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or you can look at church history. You, you, you can read about church history, and, and, and you'll see that the gospel has always flourished among the poor. And conversely, it's, it's been everything but ridiculed and thrown out, rejected, or moderately accepted by the rich and the middle class. Or even look at today where, where, where the gospel is, is thriving, where it's flourishing, it's among the poor, it's in India, it's in Africa, it's South America and parts of Asia. And the places where it's just being thrown out, uh, where it's being watered down to nothing is in places like Europe and America. Why is this? It's because the elites, the middle class, have a difficult time seeing and grasping what the gospel really is. Because for the gospel to be grasped, to be understood, to be desired, to be cherished, to be loved, there has to be need. Deep, deep need. Need for a savior. Need for someone outside ourselves to do for us what we could never do. Someone to forgive us. Someone to heal us. Someone who would come in and put our lives back together. And see, it's the poor who understand this. In fact, they are far more in touch with reality than the elites, than the ivory tower people who run things, are in charge of things, and have things. Because the poor know what the rich don't know is that, that life is difficult and that we are weak and that we are fragile and vulnerable and that we live in a dark, vulnerable, frail world. They know that. And I'll tell you, it's from inside that poverty that the gospel looks just wonderful to them. That Jesus is ecstatically beautiful to them. And see, the poor know what it means to be poor in spirit. They come to Jesus as little people. With nothing. Their hearts saying nothing. Nothing in these hands I bring. But simply to you, Jesus, your cross I go. 
Did you come to Jesus poor? Are you poor in spirit? Do you know right now that just left to your own, that you're spiritually bankrupt? Can your heart, your heart, not just your mind, but can your heart actually say that, that apart from God actually choosing me and, and, and moving towards me and redeeming me, that I'm, I'm nothing but a beggar, that spiritually I'm in rags, that spiritually I'm homeless and I'm toothless, that spiritually I stink, I smell, that spiritually I'm a leper, I'm an orphan, that I'm helplessly kicking around in my own blood. Can your heart say that apart from Christ? Because here's the wonderful gospel. It's that God chooses the poor. He preaches his gospel to the poor. He moves towards the poor. He identifies with the poor. He exalts the poor. He loves the, the poor so much that he became the poorest of the poor. And he is the good Samaritan. He saw us helplessly dying in a ditch, and he came to us. He picked us up, put us on his shoulders. He bandaged us up. He cleansed our wounds. He heals us. And then he calls us brother. Uh, and then his glory becomes our glory. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And he has exalted us to his right hand, that place of honor and privilege where there are pleasures evermore. And when this burns in a person's heart... You never look at people from a worldly point, from a worldly perspective anymore. You no longer play these, these silly games that, that our world plays of looking at externals and appearances and, and being obsessed with, with image. I'm honest when I say this, when I see the poor, when I, when I see anyone for that matter, I don't for a moment think that I'm better than that person. I can't because as I'm looking at them, I'm looking at myself. That's me apart from Jesus. And yet when I'm around the richest, the ivory tower people of our day, I don't for a moment think that I'm less than because I know that Jesus Christ has exalted me to the highest place and I am a son a prince to that great king. Who are you? Look in the mirror. What are you doing here? That's why this morning we have mikvah bowls. The water inside the bowls is for washing. The water is living water. It symbolizes Christ. These bowls remind us of who we are, that we are a people that were bought with a great price because of great love. We come to these bowls to repent. We're not coming to a boss who's disappointed to us. We're not coming to a judge who's declaring a verdict over us. We are coming to our Father and returning to his arms. Maybe some of you today are just, you're tired. You're tired of the world. You're tired of hitching your heart to the stuff of the world. And you actually right now, because of that, you just feel like you're fading, that your life is, is fading. And the reason why you feel that way is because you actually are fading. 
I mean, James says it in chapter 1. He says, you hit your heart to the world, and you're going to fade as the world fades. But hit your heart to Jesus Christ, and I promise you, you will never fade. In fact, you will be exalted. You will be this towering glory in this life and even more in the next. Or maybe today you need to confess and repent of self-righteousness and self-importance and thinking you're a lot more than you are. Maybe you need to confess a life of indifference, of self-indulgence and spiritual apathy. You can repent of that. You can turn from that. And you can turn to a life of loving Jesus by loving the least of these. Or maybe you need to repent of, of, of a life of showing favoritism, of, of using people to get ahead. Or maybe you need to repent of of being obsessed with image and appearances, starting with your own.